Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. The president wants a new generation of nuclear plants, but problems persist about old nuclear waste. All the fuel that we've ever used resides in that spent fuel pool. It was never intended to be the permanent repository for that. So now the fuel needs to be stored somewhere. The dangers of decades of radioactive rubbish. Also, fishermen went off the hook on overfishing. They say many fish stocks that collapsed have now recovered. I have a son who loves to come on the boat. I would love to see more fish in the ocean for him than there was for me. And I believe we've achieved that. We've been rebuilding stocks. Setting the right course for our fragile fisheries. And contemplating the king of the salt marsh. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stay with us. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Thousands of fishermen from the Atlantic and Gulf Coasts left their boats for a day Wednesday to travel to Washington. They're hoping to catch a break from the law's limits on overfishing. At a Capitol Lawn rally called United We Fish, New York Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer said the law that's helping to bring fish stocks back from collapse should change. Now, rebuilding our fisheries is important. We know that. We agree. But we need to start caring as much about our fishermen as we do about our fish. Schumer wants to change the landmark Magnuson-Stevens Act, which uses science to set limits on what types and numbers of fish can be caught. He thinks it should take economics into account and delay some deadlines for rebuilding fisheries. It's the latest round in an increasingly bitter dispute over how to bring fisheries back. Gloucester, Massachusetts, like many fishing communities, has weathered many changes in the industry. In the 70s, giant foreign-owned vessels depleted fisheries from just beyond U.S. waters. Then, government loans encouraged a new wave of local boat owners in the 80s. That was followed by overfishing, collapse of many important stocks, and a painful contraction of the fleet. Key parts of the Magnuson-Stevens Act aimed at ending overfishing kick in this year. Gloucester Mayor Carolyn Kirk worries that could mean tighter catch limits and even fewer boats in an already stormy economy. Gloucester is the oldest seaport in America. We've been fishing for over 400 years, and I think that the future of Gloucester as a seaport is very much in jeopardy. Kirk met with fishermen from the region to plan their rally in Washington. Government resentment and distrust run deep here. In the parking lot, a truck's bumper sticker reads, National Marine Fisheries Service destroying fishing families since 1976. That's Tina Jackson's ride. She fishes and traps lobster out of Point Judith, Rhode Island. Jackson says fishermen sacrificed to help rebuild stocks only to face further restrictions. Fishermen have been told time and time again that they will be rewarded, they will be given days at sea, they will have more fish to fish on. We are supposed to be fishing on 170,000 metric tons of fish along the East Coast every year. Last year, they gave us 43,000. Atop Jackson's list of complaints is the government's shifting rulings on whether a fish stock has recovered or is still overfished. 
She says just as a fish stock appears to be recovered, the government's numbers change. David Marciano agrees. He's a 30-year Gloucester fisherman who worries he might not be in business much longer. We've been rebuilding stocks. We're at the 10-yard line, and they're moving us to another stadium. You know what I mean? It's completely arbitrary and unfair. Never mind moving the goalpost. They're taking it right to another stadium and leaving us here. But uh, I guess uh, if I were looking at this from uh, the conservationist perspective, I might say we, we have to be vigilant. If we let up now, we're going to fall back into patterns that got us into trouble with declining stocks in the first place. We're not saying we're not about preserving the stocks. I have a son who loves to come on the boat. I would love to see more fish in the ocean for him than there was for me, and I believe we've achieved that. That's why I think it's a shame to be forced out of business by a gender-driven politics. Marciano says he knows some fish stocks are still struggling, but others are more numerous than he's ever seen. Why should one weak stock prevent his fishing the other? Steve Morosky has heard a lot of these complaints. He directs scientific programs for fisheries at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which sets fishing regulations. Morosky's sympathetic to the fishermen's frustrations, but says those changes in targets for rebuilding fish stocks were necessary as science improved. It's a very dynamic thing because our knowledge of the oceans is dynamic. Uh, and so um, it, what we have is a, an entire fishery in transition where the most productive ones, where we've been able to control overfishing, are responding well. But the law requires that we rebuild the complex, and that includes being sensitive to the stocks that grow slower and are perhaps more, even more vulnerable to overfishing. That explains part of what fishermen like David Marciano see out on the water. This time of year, Marciano's fishing haddock and cod. Morosky says the fast-growing haddock of George's Bank are doing great, the highest numbers ever. But cod? Still not so good. And remember, Morosky says, the law calls for restoring all stocks, not just a few. That certainly uh, creates tension when, where you've got productive stocks that could endure more fishing caught side by side with um, stocks that are in more trouble. And so the larger question becomes, how do we rebuild those stocks that are doing poorly, but also create economic opportunities to catch the ones that are doing well? The rallying fishermen and politicians like Senator Schumer say the best fix for that is to change the law, to add flexibility. But conservation groups say that's a dangerous course. Pew Environment Group Fishery Policy Director Lee Crockett says Schumer's proposal would put economics ahead of conservation. And we feel that that is a short-sighted strategy. It was the way we used to do things. And we had stock collapses in New England and the Gulf of Mexico, so we know what's going to happen if we allow that. And, you know, we just don't want to go back to that failed model. Crockett says a better way is to change fishing to be more fish-specific. A NOAA program called Cooperative Research finds ways to do that. It might be different bait for hook lines or better timing of fishing to target plentiful stocks and not the scarce ones. That program, however, could be gutted. The president's budget would scale back its funding. There's much more on fisheries at our website, loe.org. Now we go a bit farther out to sea. British Prime Minister Gordon Brown will soon decide on what could be the world's largest marine sanctuary, 210,000 square miles around the Chagos Islands. The 60-some British-owned Chagos Islands lie about 1,000 miles southwest of India. They include the U.S. naval base of Diego Garcia, 
They also include some of the planet's most pristine reef waters. And Rachel Jones, a researcher at London Zoo's aquarium, has been there. It's incredible. As a diver, if, you, if you've ever dived on a reef or even snorkeled on a reef, um, the chances are that you've been somewhere where people have had an impact. Um, and that can be through overfishing, through pollution, through sedimentation from coastal development, from pe- literally from people trampling on the reefs. In the Chagos, it's different. When you drop off the boat, uh, you're immediately confronted by lots of very big fish. And they tend to be the things that are first removed from a reef when people are exploiting it. So when you jump off a boat in the Chagos, you see these enormous fish, coupled with the fact that the fish are not nearly as scared of you as they should be by rights. And then as you drop down and swim over the reef, you see uh, an incredible biodiversity. It's an ecosystem that is pretty much intact and that's unusual so it's very much like going back in time jumping off a boat 50 years ago when reefs were really really in good shape well if the area is already healthy and good shape um, why is a special protection important The Chagos at the moment has a degree of de facto protection from the British government, but there is also some exploitation. There are two tuna fisheries that operate in the area. And for about a month of the year, they're in the waters around the Chagos Islands catching tuna. And along with the tuna that they mean to catch, there's a huge number of fish that they also take as bycatch. And they're usually things like billfish and lots and lots of sharks. Do we have evidence that uh, declaring a marine sanctuary and and limiting the uses there really does uh, help uh, the coral reef stay healthy? There's a fair bit of good evidence that marine protected areas have an impact. In the relatively short term, we can start to see some populations of fish bounce back within a few years. Certainly within five to ten years, we're seeing very much increased populations of fish. And this has a knock-on effect for people fishing around a marine protected area. So even though the area within which they're free to fish may be reduced, their catches may actually go up, which is slightly counterintuitive. The benthic animals like corals, the ones that are attached to the bottom, take a little bit longer. And when you start to see the reforming corals building back up again, you're really talking about the trees in the forest. These are the animals that make the reef itself. They make the habitat that all the other animals, fish and other invertebrates, rely on. It seems to me that uh, most people who have been uh, to this place uh, have probably been there as part of uh, the military because of the base on on Diego Garcia. How does that affect uh, the decision that uh, your prime minister faces here, the fact that there is this uh, important military base there? That's right. There's certainly the suggestion that you could effectively ring-fence Diego Garcia and, and, and have that off to one side. I'm certainly not in a position to comment on that, whether that would happen politically or militarily. But yes, there is a long-term commitment to keep Diego Garcia going as a military base. In fact, on Diego Garcia, there are large areas of the island which are, again, de facto, and in some cases, statutory protection as various um, uh, nature reserves and restricted areas. So the The personnel there are restricted from much of the island and it has some environmental protection. Obviously, the base itself is a relatively large development, so there has been impact on the environment there. But overall, that's one island out of 55. Bear in mind that this archipelago is scattered across an enormously large area of sea. So Diego Garcia is way down in the south, pretty much out on its own. And the islands that are really interesting from an environmental point of view are are much further north, quite a long way away. Now, the history of the of the military base is interesting in that uh, the the people who once lived on Diego Garcia were essentially evicted, moved to to other to other islands to make way for the military base. What about uh, those people? I mean, don't they have some say in that island and uh, what should become of it uh, 
as part of a potential marine sanctuary? Yeah, so what, and I think what we've what uh, the the network that I represent have said very clearly is that the environmental protection of these fantastic areas really is in everybody's best interests, whatever the future may hold, um, in terms of the Chagossian people and their their possible resettlement. They, they've got a case with the European courts at the moment, which is pending, and and you know who can say what the outcome will be, but I very much believe that you know the case we're making now for environmental protection is very much without prejudice to the, to the case they're making for resettlement. Now, uh, here in the U.S., President Bush made a pretty big splash, pardon the pun, in in the last uh, months of his uh, presidency by declaring what at the time was the world's largest marine sanctuary. But uh, as I understand it, this one, if Prime Minister uh, Brown decides to make this a sanctuary, it would be bigger, right? That's right, it would. It would be the world's biggest. But uh, yeah, Bush's rather last minute declaration of, of that sanctuary was, was, was incredibly impressive. I think it surprised a few people over here, but it was actually quite inspirational. If Gordon Brown were to follow the idea of declaring the entire area protected, it would increase the percentage of uh, strictly protected area in the world's oceans by 20%. And he could literally do that overnight. It's an incredible, exciting opportunity. So Mr. Brown could look pretty green by protecting a big patch of blue. Do I understand that correctly? (laughs) Something along those lines, yeah. Rachel Jones is with the London Zoological Society Aquarium. She's been telling us about the Chagos Islands. Thanks very much. Thank you. Just ahead, how to handle some of the most dangerous waste on the planet. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Vancouver's Winter Olympic Games won some green credibility with unique medals. The gold, silver, and bronze are all salvaged from electronic waste. We have another idea for reuse of old sports goods, and it's this week's Cool Fix for a Hot Planet from Bridget McDonald. Reduce, reuse, recycle, and now rebounce. There's a new way to score points for the planet on the tennis court. More than 300 million tennis balls are made every year worldwide. But a ball's life lasts only as long as its bounce. Even if it still looks brand new, when a ball starts to lose air pressure, it's out. Off the court and eventually into a landfill. Recycling centers won't take tennis balls because of the high cost of separating the felt from the rubber. So tossed out balls make up nearly 20,000 tons of solid waste each year. That's the weight of 518 wheelers. But now an Arkansas-based company called Rebounces has found a way to put old balls back into play. The company repressurizes balls that have little wear and tear, extending their lives on the practice court by up to three weeks. Rebounces is also developing a way to grind up worn-out balls for making court surfaces or even garden mulch. For now, Rebounces finds good homes for retired balls. They're donated to hospitals and nursing homes where they're placed on furniture legs and walkers to keep them from scuffing the floors. Not every ball is destined for a grand slam, but they can all be environmental champions. That's this week's Cool Fix for a Hot Planet. I'm Bridget MacDonald. And if you have a cool fix for a hot planet, we'd like to know it. If we use your idea on the air, we'll send you a shiny electric blue Living on Earth tire gauge. Keeping your tires properly inflated can save hundreds of dollars a year in fuel. So email us at coolfix, that's one word, coolfix at L-O-E dot org. Vermont just said no to nukes. Vermont's state Senate blocked a license extension for the aging and leaking Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant. 
And that comes just days after President Obama announced billions of federal dollars to build reactors. The president wants a new generation of nuclear plants. But as the Vermont vote shows, old problems still plague the industry. One of the biggest problems is what to do with nuclear waste. The Obama administration's budget would eliminate funding for Yucca Mountain. That Nevada site for high-level nuclear waste was supposed to start taking spent fuel from commercial reactors in 1998. But Yucca never opened and very likely never will. Which means, for the indefinite future, the radioactive waste from nuclear plants will have to be stored on site. Critics say that generates a whole host of concerns. Living on Earth senior correspondent Bruce Gellerman reports. The Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant is 40 miles south of Boston, just down the coast from Plymouth Rock. It's one of the 104 commercial reactors operating in the United States and virtually identical to the Vermont Yankee plant. As you might expect, security here is tight. There are concrete barriers and surveillance cameras. Security measures seen and unseen. Guards at the entrance wear combat fatigues, carry guns and extra clips for their automatic weapons, and masks to filter radiation, just in case. Security is a major factor in our, uh, in our lives here. Dave Tarantino is head of public affairs at Pilgrim. We meet at the front gate of the power plant, get into Tarantino's company truck, and talk about Pilgrim. The plant is owned by Entergy, the second largest generator of nuclear power in the United States. And Pilgrim is the sixth largest reactor in the nation. Interestingly, right now we're in the middle of a $20 million upgrade in a new uh, ring of security. Tarantino doesn't go into details. They're classified. Behind the fence and barricades, the Pilgrim nuclear reactor has been generating electricity since 1972, enough energy to replace 10 million barrels of oil a year. Unlike most power generation, where does their waste go? If we're looking at coal, gas, where does it go? It goes into the air, doesn't it? Ours is not in the air. Ours is not in the environment. Ours is safely stored. You know, we don't contribute to greenhouse gases. So so there's a lot of positives. It's a very small amount of waste for all the electricity we've generated. Pilgrim's reactor produces 10% of Massachusetts electricity and powers 650,000 homes. One of those belongs to Mary Lampert, who lives in nearby Duxbury. When we moved here... A few people said to me, you know, there's a nuclear plant there. And I thought, there is? Since 1986, Lampert and her husband have lived in a rambling colonial home six miles upwind across the bay from the nuclear plant. But it wasn't operating back then. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission shut Pilgrim down for safety violations. Three years and half a billion dollars of improvements later, the NRC allowed Pilgrim to reopen. That's when Mary Lampert began to take notice. When I had a life, this used to be a closet. (laughs) Today, this former closet is the office for Pilgrim Watch, an organization Lampert founded 10 years ago. This is where I work. 68-year-old Mary Lampert volunteers 50 hours a week watching Pilgrim, which you can see just over the top of her computer monitor. You're looking directly at the reactor. There is nothing between our schools, our beaches our harbor, and the reactor. It's a direct shot. Over the years, Lampert has gotten the town to put in emergency evacuation signs and stock potassium iodide pills against radiation. And her thinking about Pilgrim has evolved. So you're not saying no nukes at this point? If I have my preference, I know there are safer and cheaper ways to turn the lights on. I know that. But 
I know that's not doable in this environment. So my goal is simply what can be done to make it safer. Lampert's number one concern, the spent fuel, the intensely hot and high-level radioactive waste produced by Pilgrim's reactor. All the, um, the spent fuel that we've used since 1972 currently resides in the spent fuel pool. Spokesman Dave Tarantino says Pilgrim, like all nuclear plants in the United States, uses a pool to cool down used fuel assembly rods when they come out of the reactor. When Pilgrim was built four decades ago, spent fuel was supposed to stay in the pool for about a year, then get reprocessed into new fuel. But the U.S. halted reprocessing in 1977, so nuclear plants have had to pack and re-rack the radioactive rods closer and closer together. Pilgrim's pool now contains five times as many spent fuel assemblies than it was originally designed to hold, 38 years' worth of high-level radioactive waste. It was never intended to be the permanent repository for that. So now the fuel just needs to be stored somewhere. In the future, Pilgrim plans to move some of the spent fuel into dry casks, huge cement coffins, and store the casks on site. But waste rods will continue to remain in the densely packed pool. Pilgrim's pool is 40 feet deep, 30 feet long, and 20 feet wide. It's lined with stainless steel and thick reinforced concrete walls. Most nuclear plants have below-ground pools, But at Pilgrim and Vermont Yankee, along with more than 30 other plants in the United States that were designed in the 1960s, the spent fuel pools are located above the reactor, outside the primary containment shell. And the spent fuel pool is inside secondary containment, surrounded by five feet of reinforced concrete with a steel liner. So there's five feet of of containment around the entire pool area. Except for the top. The top is open. The roof is about as um, sturdy as the roof over our high school gym. Mary Lampert of Pilgrim Watch. The amount of radioactivity in that swimming pool on the attic of Pilgrim is about eight times than what's in the core, in the reactor. What is there to prevent a terrorist from attacking? In a very small private plane loaded with explosives, could target it. And that would be the ball game. Three days after I interviewed Mary Lampert, this story led newscasts. We are following breaking news out of Austin, Texas, where the pilot of a small plane slammed into a seven-story building. That building houses offices for the Internal Revenue Service and the CIA. F-16 jets scrambled to the scene. It's a scenario independent nuclear analyst Gordon Thompson has warned could happen at plants with above-ground waste pools. These facilities are obvious targets, and I've described them as radiological weapons awaiting activation by an enemy. Gordon Thompson is executive director of the Institute for Resources and Security Studies. He says if a plane hit a densely packed spent nuclear fuel pool like the one at Pilgrim, with its roof unprotected, water could drain from the waste pool and the exposed assembly rods could ignite into an unstoppable fire, sending enormous amounts of radioactivity into the atmosphere. Thompson estimates 10, even 20 times more radiation than the 1986 Chernobyl disaster in Ukraine. In 2005, a National Academy of Science committee studied the safety of densely packed reactor waste pools and agreed with Gordon Thompson's analysis. And 
this argument has been made at proceedings before the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and they have consistently rejected this argument. Oh, of course, the NRC has looked at this in great detail in the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. Dave McIntyre is a spokesperson for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. The NRC licenses and regulates U.S. commercial reactors. McIntyre says there are redundant safety systems and security at each plant has been studied. Well, we believe because of the modeling that we did and the, the very intensive and, of course, classified security analyses we did of these facilities, that the risk of any fire caused by an accident or a terrorist attack is very low. We believe that the high-density storage is safe, and there is no overriding need to change that. So what they're saying is, look, trust us. Mary Lampert of Pilgrim Watch. And I'm sorry, that isn't what we're going to do. What Lampert is doing, and so are the attorneys general from Connecticut, California, Massachusetts, and New York, is suing the NRC over the waste pool issue. They seek a review of the classified information the NRC used in its calculations, and they want the spent waste pools to be considered when a nuclear plant applies to renew its operating license. About half the nation's reactors have already been relicensed. All that have applied to the NRC have been granted 20-year extensions beyond their original 40-year permits to operate. Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant is one of about a dozen that is seeking renewal, but as the NRC regulations now stand... The security of the plant and waste pool cannot be challenged. Again, David McIntyre of the NRC. We look at security 24-7. So we're not really looking at security during the relicensing because that's not the appropriate venue for looking at security. We're looking at security every day for every one of these plants. Today, there is more radioactive waste being stored in spent fuel pools at the nation's 104 reactors than the Yucca Mountain Federal Repository was designed to hold. And a clock on the Pilgrim Watch webpage ticks off the time to 2012, when the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant's 40-year operating license is up, and space in its spent fuel pool is maxed out. For Living on Earth, I'm Bruce Gellerman. Time is a major factor when it comes to nuclear waste. Some radioactive materials produced in reactors can last thousands, millions of years. With Yucca Mountain's apparent demise, President Obama has asked a bipartisan panel of experts to recommend waste solutions. Another expert panel's work gives us some strong hints about what those solutions might be. The U.S. Nuclear Waste Technical Review Board, an independent body, recently surveyed 13 other nuclear nations to see how those countries handle the waste. Physicist and engineer Dr. John Garrick chairs the review board. There's unanimous agreement almost that... uh, the best approach to uh, the disposal of high-level radioactive waste and spent nuclear fuel is deep geologic disposal. So that's a major uh, finding of the survey and, frankly, a major accomplishment of, of the International Nuclear Energy Program, that there is good consensus on uh, what might be a, a reasonable solution. And is anyone actually doing that yet or, or close to doing it? Well, France, uh, Sweden, and Finland... They have established target dates uh, to begin repository operations. Finland's target date is the nearest, and that's 2020, Sweden 2023, and France's target date for beginning of operation of the repository is uh, 2025. There is one other country, Germany, that has announced that uh, it has 
lifted the ban on studying a, a site in Garleben for possible development of a deep geologic repository. So you have uh, Germany, France, Sweden, Finland, and U.S. that uh, are pretty much on a track towards citing uh, something with a bump in the road with respect to the U.S. A bump, bump in the road. That's how you characterize what's gone on with, uh, with Yucca Mountain. Yeah, that's – well – we know that for the time being, at least, that Yucca Mountain is, has been shelved. We don't know whether it'll be considered in the mix of options to be studied and perhaps reconsidered. That will all depend upon the outcome of a Blue Ribbon Commission that has been established uh, by President Obama. So if all of these other countries are looking at uh, deep geological uh, storage, is that really the only option here? What about uh, reprocessing spent nuclear fuel? Uh, yes, uh, there are countries that use uh, reprocessing. Japan is one, certainly. France is, is one. Others are planning to reprocess. The United Kingdom has uh, been reprocessing. But the issue of reprocessing is a very dubious one at this point because of economic considerations, because of the, the value received is not quite to the extent that uh, it was envisioned as a, a waste management option. Uh, no matter how much reprocessing we do, there will always be a certain amount of waste that we'll have to contend with by some method of disposal. So Finland is probably closest to actually uh, putting waste uh, in the ground. And curiously, it, it seems there that, that people are, are fairly receptive. In fact, I read that uh, one community is competing with another, even suing another, to, to win the right to be the, the disposal area. That's a difference uh, that we kind of have a hard time relating to here after the experience with Yucca Mountain, isn't it? Well, I think the one thing you have to take into consideration is that Finland has four nuclear power plants. Finland has a population of, what, five to six million people. And the political and technical decision-making process is just ever so much more simple. Well, you know, that raises a point. I mean, I know technical is the middle name of, of your organization, but is this really, at the end of it all, a, a technical problem? Well, to a lot of technical people, it is not. It has some technical issues associated with it, but most of the problems associated with siting are problems of the type of finding a community or a region that would be willing to host, uh, be the host uh, location for a repository. And this is complicated by the baggage that anything nuclear tends to carry with it. It's just a very difficult situation to sell. It's more of a political problem than a technical problem. So you, you looked at all these options of what different countries. Uh, what, what's your preference, you personally? What do, what do you think we ought to be doing here? We need to get the message out that there is a solution to the nuclear waste problem. And I think as long as we continue to consider alternatives that are temporary, interim, and storage is in that category. We leave the, the question open as to whether or not there is really a solution. I think one of the real problems with the whole nuclear program is that we have not, as a result of, of our leadership, developed a, a national will to, uh, to support it and let sound science and public acceptance be the principal drivers for our decision-making. And I think if we did this, it would go a long ways to solving the problems. Well, Dr. John Garrick, thank you very much. Thank you. John Garrick is chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Technical Review Board. And next week, we follow the Yucca Mountain money. Consumers paid billions to dig that hole in the ground, and 
could pay even more. If things continue the way they are, the ratepayer will continue to pay and get no services because they're shutting down the Yucca Mountain Project, which was the only thing that program was currently paying for. A nuclear money meltdown. That's next week. Coming up, a sound idea to tackle the bark beetles chewing up western forests. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Across the American West, millions of acres of forests are dead because of beetles about the size of a grain of rice, the pine bark beetles. The beetles' range is expanding due in part to climate change. Warmer winters mean the beetles survive farther north and higher up, and drought weakens a tree's resistance. Forestry experts call it the largest insect infestation in North American history and warn some 20 million acres could be lost in the next decade or so. Well, now, an unusual trio of researchers, a sound artist, a scientist, and a student, might have a powerful new way to control the beetles, and they found it by listening. We'll hear from all three of them and their remarkable little subjects, starting with David Dunn. Mr. Dunn's an audio engineer and musician in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where the bark beetle has devastated some forests. Well, the first thing that spurred my interest was just seeing the massive die-off that uh, surrounded the entire area around Santa Fe. And actually, at first, it just spurred my curiosity as to something that's this extraordinarily energetic. Perhaps it makes interesting sounds. The, the trick is to get inside the outer bark into the phloem layer of the tree where they do what they do to trees that uh, ultimately is so devastating. That sounds like some pretty tight uh, working quarters. How, how do you get recording equipment in inside there? Well, you have to get some kind of microphone into that layer of the tree, and that was the first challenge, and they spent oh, two, three weeks thinking about the problem and uh, came up with a very simple solution, which was just to take what we call piezo benders. They're these little flat disks that are the output transducers inside of greeting cards and marry that to some kind of meat thermometer. And these two things were glued together with a couple other little pieces of apparatus. When the beetles invade, they leave little entry holes where they've borne into the tree. A kind of sawdust comes out and you can just push this device right through the outer bark into that layer. So what did you hear uh, when you first knew you, you had success? The first sounds I heard was just sort of a, a kind of stirring, crackling noise that turned out to be the, the, the beetles moving. Uh, after listening for a few minutes, suddenly I began to hear these uh, little chirping uh, and clicking noises, which are the distinctive sounds that they make. It's very much like if you rub your fingernail across the surface of a phonograph, an LP, and it's a similar kind of sound. David Dunn thought these recordings might be of use to entomologists, so he put out a CD of the beetle sounds in hopes that scientists would find it. 
And they did. Professor Richard Hofstetter and his research assistant, Reagan McGuire, study bark beetles at Northern Arizona University. And they've been working with Dunn ever since coming across that CD. Hofstetter and McGuire were already exploring ways to use sound to deter beetles, with mixed results, which is a pretty interesting story in itself. And they're here now to tell us about that. Gentlemen, hello. Hello, this is Richard Hofstetter. Hello, this is Reagan McGuire. Where did this idea first come from, to use uh, sound to fight beetles? Well, before I met Richard, about five years ago, I had read an article in the local paper that bark beetles had killed 74 million trees in Arizona and New Mexico in the last five years. And it got me to thinking about this is a problem that needs to be dealt with. All of a sudden, I had the idea, why not use military control technology where they use acoustics to control crowds or, you know, Somalia pilots to push them off? Well, gosh, I, I recall uh, back when, I guess it was during the Panama conflict, uh, Manuel Noriega was holed up in an embassy, and uh, the military bombarded them with, with heavy metal tunes night and day. That was kind of your, your approach here at first, as I understand. Is that right? You used abrasive music. <laughs> I thought about what is the two sounds or the type of music that really annoyed me. And for me, it was Rush Limbaugh and heavy metal. It turned out I had to play Rush Limbaugh backwards because I had to sit in the lab and monitor this all day long, and he just drove me nuts. It was irritating. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we we quickly realized that any sound wouldn't work, and after five or ten minutes, Beatles made it sort of like a background noise where they eventually would ignore it. Did you think of using the Beatles? (laughs) (laughs) No, I I happen to like the Beatles. So playing music, talk show hosts, this didn't work. You, you, You needed a different approach. What did you try then? You know, after we tried just any sort of noises, we thought, you know, we should be doing something that's relevant to the insect. And, you know, the easiest approach right there was just to let's play back calls from insects just to see if we can get a response. And we got a pretty strong response. Uh, For instance, we could play the call that the male would make when he meets a female. And we call it an attractant chirp or call. And it kind of sounds like a chuk-chuk-chuk-chuk-chuk-chuk. And, you know, we'd make that recording, play it back, and we'd see the female respond to this call. And so once we realized we could change behaviors, we thought we we were onto something pretty big. So what do beetles do when they hear these sounds? Uh, It depends. And, and, you know, it depends on the call being made and and what behavior you're trying to, to influence. For instance, they may start to tunnel in circles because of the input of the sound. They may block off the tunnel entry because of the sounds we put in, and this would prevent other beetles, even their mate, from reaching them. Some other things might be they may put themselves in a receptive mode for mating because of a particular input or ignore other things that they would normally do, such as clean the tunnel to lay eggs. There's quite a different repertoire of things that we could influence. And maybe one of the most striking things is why I've been able to watch a male mate with a female two or three times and then all of a sudden turn on that female and kill her. He'll chew her to pieces. You know, you don't see that in nature. That's not natural. We've had a a bark beetle actually chew through the plexiglass, you know, to escape. I mean, just remarkable behaviors, you know, that kind of amaze us as we watch. You've kind of become the the voice on on the workplace PA system telling them all what to do. In a way, that's kind of what's happening, and that's sort of our approach, is that if we can change what they do, we can stop them from killing a tree. 
this is just astounding uh, that you're able to to dictate their behavior so specifically in some cases here. I mean, it sounds to me like you're you're really learning a lot more about uh, pretty basic uh, beetle biology and, and behavior here. Yeah, it's definitely true. And we have a strong interest in using this to uh, reduce tree mortality, but also we're interested in the basic science here. And uh, we're also very interested in how insects hear. We don't actually know what frequencies they're able to hear. We don't know what body part is listening, for instance. Is it on the feet, the abdomen, the antennae? We actually don't know. And we have several other colleagues that are pursuing these questions as well. I had no idea there were such uh, gaps in basic understanding of how beetles even, even hear. We, we, we don't know where their ears are. No, and you have to understand that there's 40% of the insects on the planet are beetles, and there is no history, no understanding of the communications at all. At least with bark beetles. You know, a lot of the focus on bark beetles went toward chemical communication. For 30 years, it's been sort of where everyone's focused. And, you know, just a few individuals have sought out other areas. And for us, it's been eye-opening, and it shows us that we know very little about how they communicate. Well, minor correction there, I would call it ear-opening, but that's just my bias (laughs) in radio. Well, the, the laboratory part of this so far sounds just fascinating, but I'm still really puzzled. How do you actually do this out there in the field? Yeah, I think our approach right now is inputting the sounds for individual trees. And so we use, uh, you know, a type of speaker device that has our recordings that we'd play into a single tree. And this would couple or screw into a tree. But also we're looking at being able to broadcast at some point and protect whole stands of trees. And that is on the drawing board. Beetle radio you're talking about. (laughs) Absolutely. What do you think about how practical this might end up being? It sounds to me like it's going to be a tad expensive to try to do this on a large scale. On a large scale, I I think it may not be practical. But, you know, for high-value trees on private property, campgrounds, roadside, you know, I think about the cost to spray a tree is in the hundreds of dollars if you're going to use pesticides. And so this device actually would be quite a bit cheaper than that. And you think if you've got to spray every time it rains or every year, Here's a device that, you know, would be, I can't say the cost, but maybe $50 roughly, but you'd only need that once and it would last for as long as it needed. And what's your, what's your inclination here? Will this work? <laughs> well, it works in the lab and it's worked on logs and it's worked in sections of trees. Uh, so we have a pretty strong idea that this will work. But you're fighting against some pretty powerful uh, biology. I mean, will the beetles figure this out? I don't think so. It's possible that, you know, there are some beetles that wouldn't be affected by the sound and that may get into a tree and reproduce. But uh, if we can reduce the fitness or fecundity of beetles by even a fraction, it'll be helpful. It sounds to me like you don't have a deep uh, animosity (laughs) toward the beetle, despite what it's doing to your, your beloved woodlands. I don't. You know, it's given me a career, so I can't complain too much. Um, but, that, you know, they're, that beetle's they're, putting food on the table. <laughs> they're beautiful organisms. No, they're actually not that pretty. They're just black or brown and kind of look like a beetle. But uh, they're very complex in the sense of they sort of are keystone species. And so, you know, in that sense, they're very interesting to study because they actually create environments for many other organisms. Richard Hofstetter and Reagan McGuire of Northern Arizona University. They say patents are pending on some of those sound recordings, and the Beetle audio device is being field tested. Now, it's tempting at this point to say something like, new weapon in battle against beetles. But as Professor Hofstetter says, the beetles aren't the enemy. 
they aren't even really a problem under normal conditions. Conditions, however, are not normal. That's the problem. A warming world is a weird world where beetles spread due to climate change and maybe even contribute to climate change. If the beetle-killed trees burn, it pumps more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere in a feedback loop with scary consequences. David Dunn gave all this a lot of thought while he was listening in on those insects ravaging the woods around his home. They are extraordinary little rich societies of creatures that have a purpose within the ecology of the forest. Unfortunately, things are changing so quickly in forest conditions that uh, the behavior has gotten out of bounds and how this becomes its own condition that contributes to the change of climate. Uh, The problem is how we affect and how we participate within these natural cycles and to what extent are we responsible for this or are we in the same position as the bark beetles? We're going about doing our our thing and and this is largely an unconscious process. You you really are listening to these beetles. I mean not just the sounds they're making, you're you're listening. It becomes a very important role to just simply do that, to listen carefully and purposefully to the the conditions of the earth at this point historically. It really is, this is a very extraordinary historical moment that we're living through. And we're just obviously beginning to see this sort of passing through the eye of the environmental needle in a way that paying attention to these sensory conditions of our world is really a valuable task. Audio engineer David Dunn talking with us about recording bark beetles. Thanks very much. You're very welcome. Glad to talk with you. Hear more of The Beatles and learn more about the work by David Dunn, Richard Hofstetter, and Reagan McGuire at our website, LOE.org. To a huge bird. Writer Mark Seth Linder often sees the great blue heron in the salt marsh near his home, the bird's irregular presence there. Despite this, and the heron's unmistakable form and great size, great blue's appearance is always a regal and welcome surprise. Great blue heron wears the bleached marsh grasses like a beard. He has made himself small just there across the brackish shallow. Stilting at the water's edge, a perfect mirror captures him, reflection joined to the vanishing point, an echo in light. Big Blue Stilting thinks he has rendered himself invisible. He remains frozen in place the way rabbits freeze on the road, as if plain absence of motion will protect him. Or is it watchful waiting, and me, the Olympian eagle whose talons are merely folded out of sight? Or do I give myself more credit than I deserve and Heron only ignores me? Even close approach will not dislodge him. He poses silent and uncaring as a sun king. Finally, the one who must bow and back away is you. Such is his hegemony. Of all his kind, he alone braves the snow, wind, ice, and often pays the price. There comes a time when the deep of February arrives and the mercury turns crystalline, dull and misted in the glass, that most of the noble court of Heron pass. 
Those that do survive range to deeper cover. I've never discovered exactly where they go. I know there are times when they live in the woods, hunting cat-like for mice and voles when they can find them, and for whatever else when they cannot. But among the flooded marshlands it is mostly fishes, and when that flood hardens over and fish cannot be found, cannot be had if they are found. What then does Heron do? A flash, a flare, a wind of great wings. Heron's equally significant other flushes from the dry Spartina leaping. A cool gray fire. Hardly the span of a tall man's arms between us, she settles like smoke, and we stand eye to eye. Now it is me who must remain, transfixed by her flame. The mystery of Great Blue Heron and his maid is not solved by science or by sovereignty. They appear, they vanish, they reappear. If the field of the marsh is emptiness, and even the air is still, that is the time for patience. Do not hurry, make no sound. Walking, use stealth. Watching, do not move. When stillness pursues what is still, all things are revealed. Mark Seth Linder writes a syndicated column called Salt Marsh Diary. He watches and photographs great blue herons and other assorted wildlife near his home on the Connecticut shoreline. next living on earth cutting up bamboo to make bicycles when you actually take the raw materials and put them together in such a way and make something so useful as a bicycle it's something that will then color the way that you look not just at bicycles but at every product peddling a new way to use an old resource next time on living on earth Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Shreese Kantaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Sousa. Our interns are Emily Guerin and Bridget MacDonald. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwin is our executive producer. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org. And Pax World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making.
On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.